listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today on the show, we have David Einhorn. David is the president of Greenlight Capital, a long-short hedge fund he co-founded in 1996. He is active in various philanthropic efforts, including City Year New York, Sohn Investment Conference, Robin Hood Foundation, and Einhorn Charitable Trust. He graduated from Cornell University and is the author of the book, Fooling Some of the People All of the Time. Enjoy my conversation with David Einhorn. David, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Really appreciate you coming on. When I decided to launch this podcast, I was trying to think of a great name that captured the subject of the show, everything related to macro and monetary policy, and I immediately thought about your article. So going back to 2012, you, of course, wrote an article called The Fed's Jelly Donut Policy, in the Huffington Post, and used a story about the Simpsons to explain how long periods of zero interest rates may actually be harmful to the real economy. And it turns out a lot of what you said there panned out inefficient allocation of capital, stock buybacks with no urgency for corporations to invest, reach for yield from all investors, especially to retirees. So a lot's happened since then. Take us back to the feedback you got from the article and if your views have changed since? Honestly, I think the best feedback I got from the article is somebody's naming their podcast after it. <laughs> I mean, how, can, how can you beat that? Exactly. And, 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 and I'm honored to be here for the, the first one of these. And I expect after I speak today, you'll probably get all kinds of feedback and I will hopefully learn from listening to the feedback you get, because I'm not a trained economist. I'm not a macroeconomic uh, specialist. I've never worked in the plumbing of the Fed or any of these things. I'm basically an equity market investor, and I think I have a few observations on some of these things from from time to time, but I, I don't profess to be a technical expert in all the mechanics of everything. Right. And what was considered unconventional monetary policy over a decade ago is really now seen as normal, not just for the Fed, but central banks around the world. And these policies seem to only be going on for longer and longer. And now there's talk about using these tools indefinitely. What's your view on these policies as far as do you ever imagine the balance sheet still being in the Fed's case over it got up to four and a half trillion, you know, ticking up towards that target right now. Before the crisis was 800 billion. Did you see it still going on this long? And what's your thoughts on using these tools indefinitely? 
Yeah, I don't know how to predict what the Fed is going to do with the size of the of the balance sheet. You know, basically, I think there's two main parts of uh, Fed policy. One is the interest rate policy, and then the other is the balance sheet size. The main thrust of the jelly donut thesis is, is that the interest rate policy, by setting rates too low, at some point you have a diminishing return from lower rates and eventually, ultimately, a marginally negative return from low rates, which is kind of separate from what you just raised, which has to do with the, the size of the Fed balance sheet and the monetary base and, and how they uh, choose to implement that. Right. So separating those out a little bit, obviously, with all the easing short-term rates, they're able to target and bring down. And now we're having some issues in the repo market. Some things changed with paying interest on excess reserves. And there's been some other issues that brought up as far as the tax bill and things like this. What's your thoughts right now on the current issues with the repo market? And can the Fed really you know, keep a hold of rates at this point? Well, I, I think the Fed ultimately can control whatever it chooses to control within, certainly within rates or whatever markets it's willing to intervene in because it has unlimited firepower in order to enforce whatever policy that it wants. Uh, sometimes eventually if a Fed, uh, if a central bank over overdoes it, outside people can take it out on the currency, which would be the, the normal reaction. But within the domestic economy in terms of control, the rate actually is, the Fed can set any rate it wants, actually almost anywhere on the curve by, you know, directly intervening in the market with unlimited firepower. Right. And going back to a Bloomberg interview you did in 2014, you told a story about how you asked Ben Bernanke in a private dinner about QE. And he talked about how these policies would not lead to higher inflation, talking about usually it only happens after a war. And he talked about Japan has done a lot more QE than the U.S. and they don't have inflation. Recently, Fed officials have said it's kind of a mystery is why CPI at least measure Inflation hasn't gone up more, but we have seen inflation in certain pockets, healthcare, housing, college tuition, and you mentioned the currency piece. So what's your thoughts as far as where inflation goes and how long it can actually stay where it is right now? When the Fed creates money, and whether it's from what you would call money printing or what they want to call quantitative easing, or most recently they're doing the same thing and they want to tell us, it's not quantitative easing. I don't really know what the difference between all of these things is, except for semantics and, and messaging and an attempt to kind of, you know, control things. Um, when the Fed increases the money, the money has to go somewhere. Um, it doesn't have as the same impact that it did when there were fewer excess reserves in the system, and we can come back to that later. I'll, I'll just skip over that for the moment. But when they create money, the money does have to go somewhere. Now, the thing is, is they don't have any control over where that is. So it could be that the price of corn goes up, or it could be the price of health care goes up, or it could be the price of stocks go up, or the price of bonds, or art, or real estate, or oil, or whatnot. But it doesn't have to be any of those particular things. So as price levels in general go up, 
it may or may not be prices that are measured within the CPI basket, which is only, you know, a subset of possible places where new money can go. That makes sense. And you mentioned kind of the mechanics of, of how QE works. So one camp says that this is just an asset swap and that this is a swap for bank reserves for treasuries. And this is normal operations where the other camp says this is something more like money printing and really something like debt monetization since all the interest gets remitted back to the treasury. And so far, a lot of these assets haven't actually rolled off. How do you actually view that piece? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of a semantic game. By only looking at one side of a transaction, in other words, like what happens after a treasury is issued, you can, you can decide, uh, you know, that it, that this isn't money printing. But when you think about it in the totality, how do treasuries get issued? Treasuries get issued because the government needs to borrow money. When the government needs to borrow money, there's two places they can borrow it. They can borrow it in the private sector, or effectively they can borrow it from the central bank. Now, there's a rule that says that they can't issue debt directly to the central bank. So they can issue a T-bill to a leading commercial bank, and then the central bank can buy the T-bill, and you're kind of in the same place. Mm-hmm. What's happened is, is the, the federal government has borrowed money, and ultimately that loan is held by the central bank, which increases the bank, the central bank's uh, balance sheet size, and, thereby, and therefore the monetary base. When you question whether it's quantitative easing, whether the current Fed chairman says it's something different from that, whether it's money printing, it's really all the same thing. Because all it is 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 it's the Fed increasing the size of its balance sheet by buying treasuries in one form or another. The difference is is some people want to look at it as a two-step thing, where the treasuries are issued by the by the Treasury Department to the private sector, and then the Fed buys it as opposed to the Treasury issuing it directly to the Fed, which is illegal. But the fact that there's two steps in the transaction, I don't think it makes any economic relevance. I think you have to look through it. And when you look through it, when the Fed buys Treasuries, they're increasing the balance sheet, they're increasing the monetary base, and effectively it's debt monetization. Right. Now, going back to more so interest rates and kind of what your article focused on, it's arguable that interest rates are really the price of money and the price of money has been manipulated. Now, as far as rates rising on the longer end, you mentioned the Fed can kind of control not just the short, but also the longer end. We saw recently when the repo market spiked up to, was it 8, 10 um, from 2, that people said, okay, the price of money is not really what the Fed says is it is, the price should be this. So the question is, how will the Fed actually, could they lose control as far as people losing faith in their ability to to just start tinkering and really micromanaging? And will that show up maybe on the long end of the curve? Or how could that crisis of confidence happen? I don't know that you'll have a crisis of confidence, but when you think about what just happened in the repo market, essentially there wasn't a huge amount of active intervention in the exact moment that it spiked. It spiked. The Fed saw what was happening relatively quickly after and announced new programs with extraordinary firepower in order to make sure that the problem doesn't persist. 
And that's what I mean by they're having the ability to control the rate. So it spiked for a moment, but beyond that, you know, they, they managed to put it back together. Relating to the long end of the curve, it has to do with how much intervention the, the Fed is willing to do. Presently, I don't know that they're doing a lot of intervention on the long end of the curve. But if you look at other central banks around the world, in Japan and Europe and so forth, there's huge amounts of intervention at the long end of the curve, and those banks have effectively cornered and controlled those rates as well. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at Japan buying up a huge amount of the JGBs outstanding and obviously buying ETFs and things like Apple stock and seemingly distorting markets in doing so. Now, going back to the article again, the thesis laid out talking about, you know, what the Simpsons was actually just really enjoyable to read for a lot of people who are trying to understand how this is all working. And I think when you look at retirees, when you look at savers and obviously pension plans and insurance companies, a lot of these types of things have really caused a big problem as far as rates being low and forcing all investors out on the curve to bid up risk assets. Do you see a path to normalization as far as rates are concerned? And what should the Fed be really doing right now? And and can they normalize rates or should they? Well, I think it depends on what one thinks about as normalized rates. Mm -hmm. Um, We're certainly in a situation that there's a lot more leverage in the financial system than just 20 or 30 years ago, which means that the debt that's in the system can't support nominal rates that are higher than a certain amount. You know, if you think about what the deficit looked like when uh, Volcker raised the short rates up into the teens, the debt to GDP was nowhere near what it is today. So you didn't create um, a, a question about the government's ability to repay the debt, even as rates went, even as short rates went up at a at a good clip, and ultimately even funding costs for loan bonds they wanted to sell at the time became quite expensive. Right, once you have debt to GDP or in corporate case debt to EBITDA at higher ratios, it becomes much more sensitive to. Um, to increase rates in terms from a, from a solvency perspective. And so the, the situation is much different today than it used to be. Yeah, and looking at equity markets, especially here in the U.S., when you look at share buybacks and other things that have been going on, how are you looking at this, the market based on these share buybacks? And a lot of people have been talking about <laughs> value investing is dead and we've seen this many times before and it's only a matter of time until the cycle has turned and it it really seems we're almost kind of at a breaking point how do you feel about the market right now i i have no opinion as to whether the market is anywhere near a breaking point not the type of um forecasting you know or thinking about things that that i think about you know in terms of things like share repurchases. From my perspective, they're a tax-efficient way to return capital and businesses to their owners. And to the extent that there aren't investment opportunities at better returns than returning capital to their owners, I think it's a perfectly appropriate thing for businesses to do. 
And you mentioned as far as going back to 2008 and even previous with the derivatives and all the debt built up in the system. How are you looking at the current environment compared to 2008? Obviously, it was built up more so in the mortgage markets. How are you looking at the market now compared to back then as far as the debt built up in the system? Are we better off after some of these regulations as far as Dodd-Frank and others, or are we actually worse off and more levered up? Well, there's leverage, but the leverage is in a different place than it was last time. Last time, I believe that the leading part of the leverage was in the real estate market, both commercial and residential. And I think today it's more in the public market, meaning sovereign debt, municipal debt, and also um, corporate. Right. And we've seen corporates levered up to some of the highest that they've ever been. But the last thing to kind of close on is you've held a position in physical gold for a while now. Other investors have talked about hedging against inflation or even a black swan event with real assets. How are you seeing a position in real assets as far as hedging against inflation? Yeah, I don't know that it's a hedge against inflation Mm -hmm. or a particular black swan event. But our theory relating to gold is is that monetary and fiscal policies combined are very aggressive. I'll just take the United States as an example. Right now, we're running a very high deficit to GDP. And this is many years into an economic recovery with something that's very close to full employment. So we're not at a cyclically neutral deficit by any stretch of the imagination. And in the event that the economy weakens, there's going to be an enormous both natural fiscal stimulus that comes from higher benefits and less tax revenue, as well as an urge for uh, the Congress to, to do things to help people out in tougher economic times. So what you have is, is a deficit right now that is very high on a cyclically adjusted basis. And then when you combine that with an accumulation of debt, you have a situation where the debt to GDP is much higher going into whatever the next down cycle is than we've had before. Similarly, you have a monetary policy, which has been very aggressive. The balance sheet is much larger than it used to be, and the rates going into a down cycle are much lower than they used to be. And similarly, in a down cycle, there'll be enormous pressure on the central bank to be very, very aggressive. And so when you combine aggressive fiscal policy with aggressive monetary policy, historically, that can lead to a problem with the currency. And then when you realize that the same dynamic is essentially in place, and in some cases worse, in all of the other major developed currencies, uh, it seems to me it's a situation where sooner or later it might be good to have a fraction of your assets in gold, which is not subject to... Um, you know, creation by the uh, by the the whim of the the central banks. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, and good luck with the whole podcast series. Thanks, David. Bye, bye, Ryan.
Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at jellydonutpod or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.